if I were uh, living in the 11th century and had to introduce, or the 13th century, excuse me, and had to introduce uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas to an audience in Damascus, for example, what would I say? How would I present it? Or if I lived in the 16th century and had to introduce Spinoza to uh, uh, an audience in Cairo, what would I say? This is the kind of questions I asked myself this morning when thinking about introducing Abdul Karim Sarouj. To, to those of us, to those in this audience who are from the Islamic world, you know Sarouj, you know his status, you know his importance, you know his standing. I don't think, unfortunately, that this is the case universally uh, in, 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 uh, in, in America, in the West in general. So I will begin in a traditional way, the way we introduce speakers uh, in Princeton, and then say a few words uh, beyond that. Uh, Abdul Karim Sorush uh, is an Iranian, was born in Tehran in 1945, uh, educated both in the traditional Islamic uh, sciences and uh, in, 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 in normal, if you would call it, secular learning uh, in a parallel manner and deeply steeped in both. Uh, after his uh, early education, he uh, was a student at the University of Tehran where he studied chemistry and pharmacology uh, and uh, ne never losing his interest in, 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 in Iranian culture and thought, and always writing on these subjects. Uh, he then uh, uh, proceeded to study in uh, uh, the, uh, the United Kingdom, where he also began to study uh, chemistry, but then switched to the philosophy of science and uh, became deeply involved in epistemology and other questions dealing with the history and philosophy uh, of science. In the course of his career, he has written numerous books. When I say numerous books, there are close to 30. Uh, most of them uh, have not been translated. They are in, uh, in, uh, written in, in Persian. Uh, I, I will read a few titles just to give you an example. Uh, the Restless Nation of the, uh, Nature of the Universe, 1978. A Critical Introduction to Dialectical Antagonism, 1979. Uh, Intellectualism and Intimacy, 1994. Uh, Expansion and Contraction of Religious Knowledge, 1995. This is a major uh, theoretical work. Uh, the Ethic of the Gods, Tehran, 2001. Now, uh, the, the importance, Sarush has been compared by, 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 by people who have uh, uh, familiar with his work, uh, uh, has been called the Luther of Islam. I don't know if that's the exact uh, uh, precise uh, uh, image that we want to uh, evoke in connection with Sarush. What is true is that Sarush is a giant among thinkers today in the Islamic uh, world and on Islam, but not only for Islam. Here I would like to just conclude by reading uh, an introduction to a collection of his essays in which the editor says the following. Abdul Karim Sorush has emerged as the foremost Iranian and Islamic political philosopher and theologian. His sprawling intellectual project aimed at reconciling reason and faith spiritual authority and political liberty ranges authoritatively over comparative religion, social science, and theology. 
So his project is a major project, which is the project which was, in some ways, the project of, of Thomas Aquinas, the, 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 the project of Spinoza, and the project of many other major figures who have had to deal with the realm of the spiritual uh, and the realm of the real, which is, which is what, what most of philosophy, I think, uh, does. And it, his work goes, as I hope we will, we will see in, 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 in the discussion today, beyond just Islam. And so it is a great pleasure for us and a great privilege to have uh, uh, Abdul Karim Sarouj here to give the keynote address uh, this morning on understanding and responding to the Islamic world. Well, I, I should add that after uh, the, 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 uh, Dr. Sarouj's presentation, the floor will be open to question, and I will be happy to recognize people who want to comment. Thank you very much. Actually, Professor Yudovich could not be more generous than this, and uh, I have to be very thankful to him, and I would like to say to the audience not to take his words very seriously, but nevertheless... Um, <coughs> <coughs> I am also honored <coughs> and privileged to be here in front of the uh, Nobel audience to speak about the understanding of Islamic world of the event, of the tragic event of the 19th, uh, of the 9-11th, um, uh, 2001. And, uh, <coughs> The topic, the title of my uh, talk is, uh, as Professor Herb suggested to me, Islam and diversity, or diversity in Islam, which is a very relevant title and topic to the present conference. Um, <clears throat> the story of diversity, of course, is not untold in Islamic culture. It is very well known to Muslims and to the Islamic civilizations. Indeed, reportedly, the Prophet of Islam said and foretold that his ummah, his people, would be divided and subdivided into 72 sects. And he said that only one of these sects would attain salvation. And uh, there is another saying by the Prophet reportedly that uh, he said that uh, the disagreement among the members of his ummah, his people, is a blessing of God, is a mercy of God. So that was quite well known to the Prophet himself, to the Muslim community at large after the Prophet. And uh, it was a reality, a fact in the Islamic culture. I come from Iran, as Professor Yudovich mentioned, and I come from the Shi'i, uh, sect, if you like, which is a minority uh, in, in the Islamic culture. It comprises about 10% of the uh, Muslim population in the whole world. And uh, so uh, the main bifurcation or the, in, in the Islamic uh, history was among the Shi'is and Sunnis, but there were many other denominations, sects, and groups emerged one after the other. The figure 72 uh, 
related to the Prophet is only symbolic and uh, the diversity was much, much more than that. So, but one thing was uh, there which uh, uh, protected the unity and secured the unity in diversity and diversity in unity in the whole Islamic history and that is the Sharia or I would say the ritual uniformity among the Muslims. This is very, very important. There has been always a kind of clash between the uh, fuqaha, i.e. The, the lawyers, the jurists in, in Islam, and on the one hand, and the philosophers and theologians and Sufis on the other. But despite all these differences and disagreements, they all were united and agreed on one thing, to practice the Sharia. I mean, despite the disagreement uh, among theologians, we had Mu'tazilites, which were on the side of reason. We, were, we had Ash'arites, who were on the side of tradition. And uh, we had the very vigorous dispute on the justice, on divine justice, on divine speech, and so on and so forth, which divided and subdivided Muslims from the early time. But one thing was common to all of them, and that was, as I said, the ritual uniformity. All of them prayed in the same direction, in the direction of Kaaba. All sang the same song. All of them actually uh, practiced their prayers in the same language, i.e. Arabic. All of them actually would fast in Ramadan and so on and so forth. Therefore, Fuqaha had a very big role in the whole Islamic history in protecting and securing the unity of Muslims despite the diversity in opinions in schools of thought and so on and so forth. There has been always a clash between these, but none of the Muslim, of the practitioners of the Muslim uh, community actually diverged from this particular way of practicing uh, Islam. <coughs> so, uh, the, as I said, the idea of diversity and the uh, reality of diversity has been always there in, in Islamic history. <coughs> now, if you look at uh, the Prophet himself, let us go back to the early Islam in the time of the Prophet. What Prophet of Islam did was uh, two things indeed. On the one hand, he propagated some new ideas among Arabs, okay? The unity of God, the idea of the salvation, the idea of the happiness in the next life, things like that. So let us call these Islam of ideas, or I better say Islam of truth. According to Muslims, according to the Prophet, there were a number of truth, a number of ideas that the Islam, uh, the Prophet of Islam actually preached and uh, propagated. But on the other hand, he was very keen to create a new identity, a new entity. So he was not there like a philosopher, like a teacher, in order just to teach something to his students. He was there in order to create a new identity. And this new identity, he secured it through this, uh, the practice of Sharia, actually. The first signal and the first appearance of the independent Muslim identity was the idea of Qibla, the direction to which the prayers should be, uh, uh, should be done. You know, um, until after 16 months 
of the mission of the Prophet, the Muslims would pray towards Jerusalem. But then upon the request of the Prophet and his praying to God, as you find it in Quran, the direction of Qibla was changed to the Mecca. It was exactly because of the, uh, uh, of the idea of the independence, thank you very much, and the identity. The Prophet wanted his ummah, his people, to be independent from other identities, from other entities. He wanted them to have their own uh, special identity. So therefore, he created two things. He preached, if you like, two things. On the one hand, a body of truth to his people. On the other hand, a kind of identity he gave to them. Therefore, no wonder that you will see that right after the Prophet, one of the major problems which was debated among the Muslims was the idea of kufr fidelity and infidelity, kufr and iman, which is 100% uh, connected to the idea of identity. The non-believer is the outsider. The believer is the insider. It has got nothing to do with the truth. It has got nothing to do with the ideas. It has got only to do with the identity of a Muslim, somebody who belongs to your party, to your group, and somebody who does not belong. There were two main ideas being discussed and debated among Muslims up until the second century after the death of the Prophet. One of them was the business of the kufr and imam, the fidelity and infidelity, and the other one was the idea of the divine justice. Divine justice belongs to the Islam of truth, Islam of ideas, and the identity actually produces the idea of kufr and iman. So there was always a kind of balance between the Islam of truth and Islam of identity. Identity always claims honor, dignity, independence, and always also actually enters a kind of clash with other identities. So this is the rule and regulation and the property of the identities. But in the case of the ideas, you have got only dialogue, you have got communication, and uh, there you have got the idea of right and wrong. Here you have got the idea of outsider and the insider. So there was two things, and the Prophet of Islam was responsible for both. He, at the same time, gave his people two things, as I said. Now, in the course of the progress of the history of Islam, these two actually, uh, two sides of the Islamic civilization, sometimes separated and sometimes converged. So striking the balance between the two is the most and was the most important task of the leaders of the Islamic community, of the thinkers of the Islamic community. Um, <clears throat> this is not only the case with Islam, but also you find it in any other religion. Religions are very prone to become the identity of persons, identity of people. It is not Religion is not like science, it's not like philosophy. Those does not constitute your identity. If somebody attacks your religion, this means that he has attacked your personality, your identity. But if somebody attacks your scientific theory, that may not be that hurting. So religions are very prone to become the identity of the people. And as I said, identity claims honor, claims respect, claims dignity, claims independence and all that. 
Now, you have got both of these in the case of Islam, and as I said, the Prophet was himself keen and responsible and very careful to produce both of these. Now, I would like to claim <coughs> that on the side of Islam of truth or Islam of ideas, we have got tolerance. On the side of Islam of identity, we have got intolerance. Now, intolerance stems from the identity, wherever it is. Identities usually clash. I personally am in agreement with Samuel Huntington, where he says that we will have a clash of civilizations. But, but I hasten to add that this clash of civilizations means clash of identities. Ideas do not clash in the sense that they do not want to eradicate each other. They do not fight each other. There is always a dialogue between ideas, whereas among identities you always have a kind of clash, fighting, and trying to eliminate your partner rather than to come into terms or come into a dialogue with, uh, with, with your partner. So fundamentalism, if you like, is a product of uh, the identity of Islam. And liberal Islam is a product of the Islam of ideas. I would like to elaborate on this and to show the relationship between the two and then to show how to make and strike a balance between the two and to show the responsibility of Muslims on the one hand, the responsibility of the West in order to solve the uh, problems we are all facing in the modern world. Now, the diversity in the early Islam was either in theology or in philosophy or in hadith and tafsir, i.e. hermeneutics. On the theology side, we had Ash'arites, as you know, and Mu'tazilites. In the hadith, we had many schools of hadith in fiqh and in jurisprudence, as you know, in the Sunni part of Islam, we had at least four schools of uh, thought, and in the Shi'i, of course, we had only one. And in the case of philosophy, uh, well, there was always a, a, a debate, a, a question, a big question, whether philosophy, we, do we have an Islamic philosophy per se, or perhaps it is something which is borrowed from the Greek, and uh, it is alien to the Islamic culture. So that was the uh, diversity in the world of Islam, partly as a reaction to the ideas coming from outside and partly uh, coming from the inside, i.e. based on the teachings of, of Islam itself. Um, <clears throat> when we approach the modern time, the diversity still is there, but now it changes its nature. In the modern time, especially after the advent of modernism, we have got another kind of diversity. Now we have got, I would say, three types, three kinds of reading Islam. On the one hand, you have got the modernist Islam. On the other, you have got the traditionalist Islam. And the third one is the fundamentalist Islam, as it is usually used in the West. Muslims, they themselves are not very happy with this term, fundamentalist. 
maybe ideological or something else we might call it. But anyway, for the sake of understanding and for the sake of argument, we can use it, but I will give you my understanding of these terms and my definition of them in order to be absolutely clear. Now, traditionalist Islam, it has got two uh, subtypes, uh, the learned traditional Islam and the unlearned traditional Islam, if you like. This uh, kind of reading of Islam means uh, a kind of uh, <clears throat> understanding Islam in its otherworldly uh, uh, teachings. They do not have much to do with, the, uh, with, with solving the problems of, uh, of this life. They would like to live a happy life uh, and uh, they always think about the salvation in the next life and so on. This is traditionalist Islam. Among the learned ones you would find in the West and in the Muslim countries, people who write a lot about Islam, who would like to interpret Islam, and who would like to show the independence of the Islamic culture, Islamic teachings, and so on and so forth, without at all having an eye on the modern problems facing the Islamic world and so on and so forth. So for them, tradition is sacred, is untouchable, and that's the whole uh, heritage that we inherit from the past and we have to protect it. Now, this is otherworldly Islam, I would call it, the traditionalist Islam. But then when you come to the worldly Islam, to the Muslims who think both about this life and the next life, who are committed to Islam nevertheless, among them you would find two uh, uh, different groups. On the one hand you have got the modernists, and on the other you have got the fundamentalists. The modernist, according to my definition, is the part of Islam which responds to the ideas of the West of the Western civilization and would like to grasp it, to digest it, to accommodate it, and to come to terms with it and to enter a dialogue with it. After all, they think that there are some truths in Western culture, Western civilization that uh, no sensitive person has to ignore it, has to be oblivious or negligent towards it. So sometimes they call it liberal Islam but modernist Islam is perhaps a more comprehensive term to be used. But fundamentalist Islam is uh, responding to the identity of the West. So I would like to say that perhaps fundamentalism in Islam is a kind of reaction to fundamentalism in West. This is very important to know it from the eyes of a Muslim, from the eyes of the uh, people who live, live in, in Islamic countries. Muslims at first came to know West through its ideas. For example, in Iran, we came to turn with West uh, f on the basis of the idea of constitutionalism. We had our constitutional revolution about a century ago. We tried to adopt ideas from the French Revolution, fraternity, liberty, and so on. We tried to secularize, perhaps, I mean, in quotes, our educational system and many other things. So that was the uh, first encounter of the East and West, or the Muslim countries in the East with the uh, Western civilization. 
So everything seemed to be going on well, and the dialogue and the, uh, the borrowing of the ideas were okay to some extent. But then, but then the militant face of the Western civilization, I mean, gradually emerged and uh, became known to, to Muslim people. First of all, the fragmentation of the Ottoman Empire, the First World War, the Second World War, Muslims and the Eastern people learned that this civilization is not, after all, a consistent one, is not, after all, a peaceful one. It is militant. It is producing war after the war, unprecedented conflicts, unprecedented destruction in the whole history of mankind. First World War, Second World War, the... Uh, <clears throat> The implantation of Israel at the heartland of the Muslim countries and Arab countries, which has never been actually a, a, a morsel to be swallowed by Muslims in, in, in the East, they have never been convinced of, of such a thing. The, the, the conflict has not been resolved yet. And uh, the business of the oil and uh, the self-interest that they... Uh, actually witnessed in, in, in the dealings and uh, treatments of the Western civilization towards other people. Coups, coup d'etat here and there in different parts of the world. We ourselves experienced one in, in Iran in 1952 where Mossadegh was toppled and the regime of Shah was restored and uh, so he, he ruled for another 25 years. So the militant face of the Western civilization actually by and by emerged. It was, they were alarmed. The identity, the honor, the dignity, the independence of the Muslims, especially the identity Muslims, if you like, was hurt to some extent. So here it was not only the West of ideas, but the West of identity, as I classified Islam, the Islam of identity and the Islam of ideas. So it emerged by and by, and Muslims tried to come to terms with it, to learn it, to understand it, to know it better and better. So uh, that was, as I say, responsible for producing fundamentalism, for making Muslims, at least part of them, more sensitive towards their identity, and made them to reassert their identity. And this reassertion of the identity actually uh, creates fundamentalism. Fundamentalism in the modern sense has got nothing to do with the classical holy war in Islam. I would like to correct this mistake, which is usually being uh, committed in the uh, newspapers, in the speeches, and so on and so forth. Whatever you may think about the holy war in Islam, yes, it is a fact, it is in Quran, it is in Hadith, it is in the saying of the Prophet, you can find in the practice of Muslims, but the main motive behind the holy war in Islam is to propagate the Islam, is to uh, preach uh, or spread the word, if you like. And uh, sometimes even, yes, even to force others to become Muslims. So that was the idea behind the holy war in, in the early Islam. But fundamentalism in the modern world 
in the Islamic world has nothing to do with this business of the holy war. It is to reassert one's identity, you see, in front and vis-a-vis others' identities. It is a kind of uh, uh, self-expression. It is a kind of uh, <clears throat> putting emphasis vis-a-vis others about one's own presence in the world and one's own existence in the world. Now, <clears throat> this is the kind of diversification that we encounter in the, in the present Islamic world. As I said, and I repeat it again, you have got the uh, uh, traditionalists, you have got the modernists, and you have got the fundamentalists. The modernists or liberal Muslims, actually, they would like, they are, um, I mean, prone, and they are active in understanding the West and in responding to West in terms of ideas. The fundamentalist Muslims or Islam is uh, active in responding to West uh, on the basis of their identity. Um, now, it is the responsibility of the thinkers, of the responsible people, wherever they are, be it in the West or in the Muslim world, to strike a balance between the uh, the uh, truth and the identity. Um, in the Islamic world, uh, there has been always such a sensitivity and such a concern about Muslims to do this, but this has to be balanced with what is going on in the uh, other part uh, of the world. Um, when you come to the idea of truth, idea of truth is always universal, is uh, not the property of anybody, but when you come into the uh, business of the identity, the property, the ownership is the main thing. My truth, my religion, my justice, and so on and so forth. And this actually uh, uh, endangers the whole idea of truth and uh, lets others uh, come into a clash. <coughs> so, uh, my main uh, actually uh, message here is both parties, West and East, Muslims and uh, non-Muslims, are responsible in this particular respect and Understanding the responsibility means that uh, instead for the Westerners to, to uh, put emphasis on the identity of the West and to attacking the honor, dignity, respect, independence of others, they must, and to put emphasis on the idea of the clash and conflict, they must put emphasis on the idea of, uh, of dialogue and coming to terms with uh, the uh, ideas of others. And the responsibility of the Muslim thinkers is just to strike a balance between the uh, identity and the, the truth in Islam. And I think uh, that will uh, maybe uh, enable us to perhaps uh, to solve our uh, problems. That will uh, actually uh, 
end my my presentation here. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Give you uh, 30 seconds uh, to to absorb and to and to uh, and then the uh, <clears throat> the floor would be open for uh, comments or uh, questions, remarks um, on this extremely interesting and uh, I would even say uh, provocative in some ways uh, presentation of uh, Dr. Sorouche. Yes, Eugene. Just a minute, Eugene, uh, there's going to be a, a mic coming. Professor Sorush, since you went to efforts to distance fundamentalism from notions of holy war, there's one concept which still seems to get a lot of interest in the Western media, which is uh, the notion that there remains a fundamental distinction between the Dar al-Harb and the Dar al-Salam uh, or Dar al-Islam, um, the abode of war, which is to be the non-Muslim world, and, and the abode of, of Islam, where, in essence, people can live in peace. Could you clarify for us now if these concepts have any current relevance or meaning, or whether this is strictly a historical notion that is no longer relevant to current affairs? Yes. Well, Darul Harb, as you know, is the host of war, uh, according to the Muslim jurisprudence, and Darul uh, Islam is the host of Muslims. I mean, the world of Islam and the world of the people who are at war with Islam. So originally, that is what uh, it means. This does not mean that those who are non-Muslims are always at war with, with, with Muslims. If they are at war, if they are fighting against Muslims, then of course it is the duty, the responsibility of Muslims to fight back and uh, to, to react to their fightings. Um, nowadays, that we have got international laws that the security of each country is to be uh, protected, is to be respected, and. Uh, all come under the same international law. Therefore, we do not have such boundaries, such a definition is not anymore at work, dividing or subdividing countries into the Darul Harb and Darul Islam. This belongs to a period in which there was no well-defined international laws. You see, and every country actually was permitted, so to speak, to attack any other country in order to expand its own identity, its own entity. So there, this definition was in order, and uh, it was for Muslims actually to, to protect themselves against those who fight against them. But uh, nowadays, no, there is no such thing. And the Holy War, as you know, was uh, one aspect or one dimension of the Holy War was to fight against those who were fighting. Uh, there is a verse, a very well-known verse in the Quran, قَاتَلُوا الَّذِينَ يُقَاتِلُونَ to uh, fight those who fight against you. So uh, that is the formulae, and that is the uh, origin and the basis of this division of countries and lands into Darul Islam and Darul Harb. But it no longer applies. 
Yes. I'd like to follow up that question. Um, recently, um, the Bush administration released what it calls its national security strategy. And for those who haven't read it, I think it's very germane to what we're talking about because it sets out a notion from the U.S. government about how it is convinced that it has found the truth about how societies can function to be safe and secure and sustainable based on democracy, capitalism, the ownership of property, etc. And there's a long list of specifications of what that means. And this document then goes on to say that, you know, there are those places out there that don't have this, and it is our responsibility to give this to them, whether they want it or not, because it says we will wage a war of ideas. And it mentions specifically the Muslim world to convince them of the rightness of these things, etc. So my question is that I'd be interested in your opinion about the difference in the reading of the West that differentiates modernist Islamic efforts and fundamentalist Islamic efforts. Because the former, the modernists seem to me to presume that the other side is also willing to dialogue and accommodate. Otherwise, there is no accommodation, there is surrender. And the fundamentalists seem to presume that, as they've demonstrated, that you know, accommodation is not possible. Etc. So I'm just curious as to how you see the distinctions, the different Wests that each of these three strains in contemporary Islam that you see. Sorry, the last bit of your question, the, the different Wests? It seems to me that uh, each of the three strains of Islam, the modernists, mm. the traditionalists, and the fundamentalists, have a different notion of a West that they are yes. dealing with. Yes. And so I'm curious as to how you see those Wests. I mean, can you explain what you see as those differences and their significance? Well, it's a very long story. and. Uh, um, well, as I said, for the traditionalists, they think that the uh, West is, I mean, essentially corrupt and has nothing to do to offer to mankind. It is a wrong civilization. It is something which uh, is based on wrong ideas, on self-interest, on humanism, on secularism, and uh, um, many other things which are not acceptable to them. And because of that, as I said, they only think of the independence of the Islamic culture and they protect themselves from so-called corruption of the Western ideas. So that is the traditionalist view about uh, Islam. These traditionalists sometimes actually uh, align with fundamentalists as well. You see, because for them, fundamentalism also is closer to the traditionalism than to liberal or to the modernist Islam. So they sometimes actually come to terms with each other and uh, solve their differences and disagreements and try to reconcile themselves. We have the same thing, I mean, in Iran. Sometimes these so-called fundamentalists and traditionalists unite in order to fight against uh, other sectors of, uh, in society. So that is as far as the uh, traditionalism is concerned. For them, if uh, they are masses, it is uh, sufficient just to practice Islam, to fast, to pray, and uh, to 
people give their arms and so on and so forth. That is Islam for them to go to Hajj, to Mecca. And if they are learned, they are usually anti-Western and uh, they write a lot and uh, teach a lot about the Western corruption and so on and so forth. This is, and they put emphasis on the sacredness uh, of the teachings of, of Islam, on the esoteric dimension of Islam and so on. So that is traditionalist Islam, which of course it, it involves a lot of good things. But nevertheless, as I said, their main idea is to be otherworldly, not to pay attention, not to take notice of anything which is going on in the modern world, because according to them, Western civilization is not correctable, is not corrigible. It is something which is thoroughly corrupt. And so this is like uh, the idea of a Marx about capitalism. He said, in order to correct, to reform capitalism, there is no way but to execute it. So that is what they think about the whole Western civilization. There is no way to reform it, to correct it. So that is as far as traditionalism in Islam is concerned. Now, it is because of this otherworldly, I would say. They just focus their attention to the next life and they actually uh, work and act for salvation. Uh, but on the other hand, as I said, you have got uh, Islamic uh, groups and uh, uh, sects who think, uh, uh, I mean, they think that they have to be uh, somehow engaged in worldly affairs. They have to be able to solve the problems of, uh, of this life. They are political Islam, if you like. They are political Islam. In the traditionalism, you wouldn't find any politics. So on the one hand, if you like, we can subdivide or redefine our uh, previous uh, division like this. You have got on the one hand the political Islam, on the other the non-political. The non-political is traditionalism. The political one is either a modernist, liberal Islam, or a fundamentalist, ideological Islam. So these two subdivisions we have. The liberal, modernist Islam is that kind of understanding of Islam which comes to turn with the ideas coming from the West. Philosophy, ethics, science, things like that. They think that after all we are human beings, we have got common denominators, if you like, and uh, we can communicate with each other, and science and thinking is not confined to a particular generation, a particular race, a particular period of history. Therefore, we can borrow many good things from the West. So this is the modernist or liberal Islam which is a political one. They think that even ideas in politics and some other things can be borrowed, can be borrowed and refined from the West. So they usually look into the West as a body or as a treasure uh, or as a, 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 a place from which you can borrow ideas. They do not actually confront the identity of the West. They just look at its science, its ideas, its thoughts, and things like that. Uh, for them, as I said, uh, West is uh, like a class from which and in which you can learn a lot. But of course, you have got your own independent thinking. You can criticize it. You can refine it, redefine it, and so on and so forth. Uh, 
Now, we have got the fundamentalist Islam as a third type of reading of Islam. That is also a political Islam. That also thinks that Islam is not only for the next life, but also for this life. So it has to be uh, taken seriously in solving the problems, in shaping the identity of the Muslim community, and in uh, gaining power, and in shaping your politics. But they are fundamentalists in the sense that I mentioned before. They think that West is confronting them not as a body of ideas, but as an identity. It is there in order to crush them. It is there in order to hurt their dignity, in order to uh, take away their independence, and so on. This is the way they look at the West. And because of that, fundamentalism grows among them. So the responsibility for the, uh, for the Westerners, for the thinkers here, is just to, uh, to manage, to uh, actually uh, to, 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 to come to terms with these people and to show them that uh, they are not there in order to crush their identities, their dignity, their independence, their honor, their history, but just to propagate the, the truth and the ideas uh, without being the property of, uh, of, of anybody. After all, let us know that Muslims, uh, they think that they have got very good ideas, universal ideas. They think that they have got every right in order to, to propagate their ideas all over the world. And they have been doing this in the past. So this is with them still. And they think that uh, it is exactly like the West, which uh, sees itself rightful to propagate its ideas about human rights and so on and so forth. So they think that they have got the same right in order to, uh, to propagate their ideas. So understanding the world of Islam, understanding the dignity and the honor of the Muslims, and trying to respect them, that is the key, that is the clue to actually eradicate the, uh, this business and the issue and the danger of fundamentalism. Professor Ahmed. Uh, Pakistan. Well, I must compliment Professor Sarosh on his thoughtful and thought-provoking presentation. However, I have certain reservations about the basic differentiation between truth and identity. Yes, these are two distinct dimensions, yet fused together. An identity and truth, ideas and identity, they are so closely integrated to give the distinct personality that it would be very difficult to really bifurcate the two and put them into two categories. My second reservation is about the question of diversity, you have very ably presented diversity within the Islamic realm. But perhaps there was another important dimension, and that is di diversity as accepted by Islam outside its realm. And from that viewpoint, it's very important that even in respect of truth, Islam claims that all religions of God brought the same message as such we share. Quran is Musaddaq, Muhaymin, of all that has been revealed before. Quran also accepts the fact that although 
other religious traditions and cultures may not have kept that truth unalloyed or unpolluted, yet whatever their given reality, it has to be accepted. And that's why Ahle Kitab have a distinct position in the global framework, so much so that the two key elements of human survival, food and nasal, marriage, for them, they can maintain their identity and yet be part of the Muslim family. And even beyond that, others have a right to exist, right to have their own way, like Rahafiddin. From that we find there is a diversity outside also, which is an integral part of it. Your formulation about the contemporary Islam also have very strong reservations, because traditionalist Islam, as we see it, was not primarily unconcerned with the ideas of the West. In Indian subcontinent, I know that Muslims, scholars, ulama took to English language, and there are at least 124 specialists in English language in the late 18th and early 19th century. So it was not a question of ideas. It was a question of political situation in which they tried to adopt a strategy of defense as against confrontation. The fundamentalist formulation, I have very, very strong reservations because this is a term unique to the American evangelical context, nothing to do with Islam. Muslim response actually represents a, an effort to bridge the gulf between the traditional and modernist, and that is the revivalist Islam. Yes, today there are some extremists, but we should not confuse that with the overall thrust of the revivalist Islam. My third observation is about your response to the question about the Al-Harab and Darul Islam. Yes, it was a formulation, but along with that, the Fuqaha also used the term Darul Amn, Darul Ahad, Darul Dawa. All these are terms in our history and of contemporary relevance. So it was not just a two-way division into Darul Harab and Darul Islam. And finally, uh, I would like to say that the question raised by from the floor about the new strategy that the Bush administration has tried to suggest is really a recipe for global hegemony and domination and the inauguration of a new imperialist age, if unfortunately that is pursued. Thank you very much. Uh, may I suggest, there are, I have six people yet on the list, and I think that there are more hands popping up. Yes, there are. So um, maybe we could, we could group the questions together. What do you think, Surush? Well, my memory may not work that well. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> so then, 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 in which case, in, in, in which case um, uh, I don't believe that, but, but, I, will, uh, but I, I will ask the, 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 the future, uh, the people who are asking questions to make their remarks as brief as possible and, get, and so that we can uh, get Professor Surush's response. So, uh, shall yeah, I? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you raised a number of points, which, uh, I mean, separately, they are very important. But first of all, uh, since, as I said, my memory may not work very well, so uh, I may not be able to reiterate one by one cons consecutively what you said, but just I lump them together in order to say yes. I mean, identity and ideas, as I said, sometimes are integrated. But logically, we have to separate them. 
because they have got different properties, they have got different rules and regulations. In one person, in one community, yes, they go together, no doubt about it. And as I said, religion, among other kinds of ideas, is very prone to become the identity of, of a community, of, of a person. But as you say, identity is uh, there in order to uh, establish its hegemony, whereas for truth there is no hegemony, there is no uh, question of my truth. You see, let me put it like this. When you talk about justice, you cannot talk about uh, Western justice or Islamic justice for that matter. Only justice as a universal idea. This is the truth. This is the idea. But when you bring in the idea of the ownership, the idea of the, uh, as the justice as a property, my justice, Islamic justice, Western justice, Western human rights. This is uh, actually the idea of identity, which uh, of course has got its own rules and properties. So it is indeed, actually, again, for example, in Muslim minorities, minorities for that matter, I mean everywhere, Christian minorities, Muslim minorities, when they are minorities, look at Muslim minorities in the West, in America. They mostly put their emphasis on the identity. We are Muslims as against non-Muslims. This is the first important thing for them. We are not blaming them. I mean, this is the psychology of minorities. This is the psychology of minorities. For them, the identity is everything. For them, the identity is everything. And because of that, you would see that the people who would not fast when they are in their original land, they would fast here. You see, because that establishes their identity. That shows their belonging to, to their own community. They go to prayer, to Friday prayer. They go to, uh, to, to the uh, Idul Fetr uh, prayers and so on and so forth in order to show to themselves and to others that they belong to a particular community, to a particular minority. So the identity for them is the most important thing. And if you hurt their religion, you would hurt their identity, their selfhood, and their dignity, and so on, and then very soon you will come into a clash with them. So that is the business of the identity. <clears throat> now, putting emphasis on the identity belongs to the period of weakness. When you are powerful enough, you wouldn't have a need, a necessity to assert your identity. You are powerful, you know that you are there, you know that you wouldn't be shaken so easily, therefore you just propagate your ideas. This is the business of the truth. But when you are weak, then the identity comes first and claims everything. And there, this is one of the, uh, I mean, uh, when you are as a minority, living as a minority. So I would say that, and that's why this, uh, you do not like the word fundamentalism. I do not like it either, and I said it. And this is a word coined by, as you said, Western academia. And since we understand each other, when we use it, I actually used it. So you suggest a better word, so we use that. What you said, extremism, okay, extremism. But what I was concerned with was the root the cultural root or the psychological root of this extremism, fundamentalism, or whatever. What I wanted to say, and I reiterate it and repeat it again, is this, that fundamentalism or extremism stems from extreme emphasis put on the identity. 
And the traditionalism or modernist Islam is stems from the emphasis put on the Islam of truth or Islam of ideas. So that is the most important thing. There has been always a kind of balance between the two, but now the balance is disturbed because of the intrusion of the Western civilization. And Western civilization has got two dimensions, two sides, as I said, ideas and identity. The identity of the West now, as you say, claims hegemony over the world. This is identity. This is not truth. This is not ideas. The identity of the West now threatens the independence, perhaps, of other countries, of other lands, of other cultures. And that's why now they are reasserting themselves in front of the West, and so on and so forth. So let us be aware, be conscious of the two things. You see, and uh, this is the feeling of the people in the Islamic world, that when the Westerners talk about human rights, it is not a universal human right. It is Western human right. That is their feeling. That is their impression. That is their perception. So always and everywhere they see the identity of, of the West present, even in the ideas, you see? And that's what provokes them in order to respond to it. Now, this response sometimes, of course, takes the shape of an idea, of a kind of dialogue, and sometimes in extremism, okay? So the more you put emphasis on the identity of the West, the more you get the reaction on the other side, on the part of, uh, of your partner, whoever it is, uh, the identity reactions. And the more you put emphasis on the ideas, the more you get the response uh, uh, from the uh, other side in terms of ideas and so on. So this is the formula actually which I follow uh, and uh, I tried to make it clear in this. And uh, as I said and I repeat it again, the Prophet of Islam was very keen on creating a new identity, no doubt about it. The holy war was about it. The business of the kufr and Islam, fidelity and infidelity was about it. The ritual uniformity serves it and many other things. So there is a very solid foundation in the Islamic Sharia for consolidating the identity of Muslims as a community, as a culture, as a civilization. It is no doubt there and it is not yet that shaken. And because of this, this has to be taken into account in any formulation, in any calculation about the Muslim world. Thank you. Yes. Um, could you please identify yourself? I'm sorry. Yes, my name is Ahmed Shahi from Oxford, St. Anthony's College. Um, thank you very much for your interesting talk. I have two very, very short questions. One, um, I think your classification of traditionalist, modernist, fundamentalist is all very well in theory. In the practice, it doesn't work. Take, for example, a leader, a Muslim leader in the, in the Sudan, Hassan al-Turabi, he was espoused by many government, Muslim government. Here he is a learned traditionalist. He went to Quranic school. He's a modernist. He went to Paris to study. And he's a fundamentalist. And what, he, what did he do? He declared jihad against the southern Sudanese who are non-Muslim. And equally, he brought Ibn Laden from Saudi Arabia to Sudan to train people to go to Afghanistan with him and to, to do whatever he did in Africa. And here is a man who would straddle all these classifications you said while you trying to say fundamentalists, those people in jihad, they don't, modernists do not believe into it. In a, in a sense, these are very fuzzy 
classification of yours. And realities doesn't work. The second is a question of a truth. Now, of course, I, th I, I don't know whether you agree, there are truths rather than the truth. I'm not talking about the shahada and believing in one God. In a, I'm talking about the way people live their life as Muslims in various parts of the world. For example, my experience in the Sudan, in the 60s I talked to people about Shiaism, and they said, what is Shiaism? This is kufr, right? This is kufr. You say Ali should have proceeded, you know, should have succeeded the Prophet? No way. So you could see that as from this, these Lokis, as you go further, further, there is an experience of Islam in Africa, there is experience of Islam in Asia, in Arabia, and various people. There isn't one single truth. There are various truths, various ways of life. And I don't know what you feel. How do you reflect on this? Well, I mean, as to the first uh, observation you made, um, perhaps of a definition of traditionalists and so on are different. And as you said, I mean, there is no well-defined terms in this respect, but I try to, 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 to make myself really clear. Traditionalism does not actually, uh, is not uh, to be confined to knowing the tradition. That, that was not what I meant by traditionalism. By traditionalism, I meant non-political Islam. That is what I mean by it. Of course, you might have your own uh, uh, terminology, vocabulary, and so on and so forth. But I think among the Muslims inside Iran, inside the Arab countries, and um, in, in the whole Muslim world at large, there are traditionalists, as I said, in the scholars and among the non-scholars, among the masses. Most of the Muslim masses are traditionalists in the sense that I am using. They are just content to be Muslim, to practice their Islam, and they have nothing to do with politics. And they do not have any theory about the politics. They are just followers, as, as the case is with, with many other people and masses in, all over the world. I mean, most of the people here also are followers. They do not have their own theory about, uh, about politics. They do not have their theory about economics, and no, no, nothing like that. I mean, about religion, they are just followers. Traditionalists in the Islamic world are like this, and uh, we encounter them, I do encounter them in, in our country, and uh, you perhaps do it in your own land, and so on. So that is my definition of tradition. Traditionalism in the sense that, uh, in a sense, actually, they are secularists in the sense that they actually entrust the politics to politicians, and they do not actually interfere with politics. They do not want to base any uh, any uh, political system on the ideas of Islam. They just, most of the scholars are like this. Most of the ulama, you see, for example, in Iran and other, they are traditional in this sense. They do not want, actually, to be involved in politics. They did not want to be involved in politics before the revolution in Iran and even after the revolution in Iran. They are just aloof. They keep aloof. They want to live their own life their own clean life. This is traditionalism as far as I understand it, and I can show you a, a, a huge number, enormous number of Muslims all over the Islamic world who actually can be grouped in, in this uh, particular category. Now comes to political Islam. Of course, I mean, there are, for example, in Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini was uh, a man who was traditionalist in, the, in your sense. He knew the tradition very well, but he wasn't no traditionalist in my sense. He was thoroughly a political man, somebody who wanted to establish, to create a system, a political system on the basis of the idea of Islam. So he was a politician. His, I mean, Islam was a political Islam. And uh, 
He was very, very, you see, let me tell you, this business of Salman Rushdie, this is very telling, okay? Let us look at the business, which is, again, a very provoking issue. I know that uh, it created a lot of sensitivity, but as you know, it was a response of identity Islam to identity West. It was not a response of the Islam of ideas to the West of ideas. That's very important to understand it. The uh, Salman Rushdie actually hurt the dignity and the honor of, the, uh, of Muslims, of Ayatollah Khomeini at least. It hurt his dignity because he felt that the identity was at danger. It was not something because that uh, uh, Salman Rushdie refuted or refused some uh, ideas of Islam. It was only the business of the identity and the dignity that uh, Ayatollah Khomeini actually reacted to it and uh, promptly. So that is important. He was a fundamentalist, if you like, in this particular sense. He was, of course, uh, a man who, uh, who wanted, he, he repeatedly said this in, in his speeches in Iran and elsewhere, that he wanted to restore to Muslims their identity, their dignity, their honor. He, he didn't actually offer any new interpretation of Islam. He didn't. He was a man of politics. He didn't offer any new interpretation of Islam. He just, as I said, wanted to restore the dignity and honor, at least according to what he claimed. Now, coming to Hassan Turabi, some people might, I mean, change face. Some people might have uh, an unsettled position, sometimes on this side, sometimes on the other side, so this can, can happen. But this does not disturb uh, our uh, uh, classification as to traditionalism, fundamental extremism, if you like, and uh, uh, modernist Islam. I mean, but some people might actually move from one to the other, sometimes be here, sometimes be there. Nevertheless, this different, this diversity in the Islamic world as a reaction to the Western civilization now exists. Like the diversity in theology and uh, other disciplines in the early Islam, which was partly because of the invasion of the ideas of the, uh, I don't know, Greek and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Yes, uh, given the uh, focus of this conference on after 9-11, it seems to me very difficult in the West to separate your distinction uh, of, of, of what you're calling fundamentalism uh, from holy war. Mm. It, it, how, one, how, does the, how can the West understand that uh, holy war has nothing to do with fundamentalism? in light of the degree to which uh, the events of 9-11 were so uh, closely identified uh, with holy war. And a, a, a closely related question is uh, how you might see uh, the world of Islam reconciled to the West given the kinds of intrusions you spoke about, such as oil and uh, 
the problems surrounding the existence of Israel and given the kind of global strategy that the United States, global and regional strategy that the United States is currently pursuing? Well, the, the second question is for politicians actually to decide about. What I'm saying is that uh, perhaps these are the roots and these are things which uh, stem from the identity of the West, or at least in the eyes of the Muslims there. Uh, these are things which show the militant face of, uh, of the West. For them, West is not, as I said, a bank or a tank of ideas, but also a militant entity which is going to spread its hegemony over the world. And they have got evidence to that, especially uh, the, uh, in the 20th century. I mean, more evidence has emerged in this respect. After all, the anti-Western propaganda in Muslim countries mostly rests on this kind of evidence which I uh, uh, presented here, and there are many. Of course, it is not only America, it is Western civilization, I mean, altogether at large. But nowadays, of course, America is at the forefront. Uh, but as far as the Holy War is concerned, I think I mentioned in the Holy War, um, you are um, actually, uh, uh, the, the Holy War is there in order to propagate Islam, in order to spread the word, in order to present Islam to, to, to other nations and to the non-Muslims. But these kind of attacks has nothing to do with the spreading the word, with propagating Islam, with preaching the ideas and nothing. So yes, I mean the people who commit it, they might push it in, in a religious language, but that has got nothing to do with the essence of the action, the essence of the operation. Of course, I mean this is always possible to do it like that. But let us look at the motive, let us look at the nature of the action, and the consequences, it is nothing. You had holy war in the early Islam. Now, Iran actually was, uh, became a Muslim country because of a holy war, and many other countries. So that was the consequence. Now here, actually, these kind of actions not only make anybody Muslim, but maybe some people even uh, make uh, themselves, uh, I mean, create some distance from Islam. So that is not, has nothing to do with the holy war. And uh, uh, therefore, I would say that let us, holy war is there to serve the Islam of truth, not to serve the Islam of identity. That is my definition. But here you have got an extremist activity which is there in order to serve the Islam of identity rather than the Islam of truth. And because of this, the nature of the two activities are absolutely separate, absolutely distinct from each other and not to be conflated. <clears throat> the, the Western press and a lot of the Western population, populace in a sense, uh, stereotypes Muslims or Islam. They stereotype it and you properly distinguished the different kinds of, uh, the type of diversity or different kind of identity that the different Muslims come to in the world. And I agree with you because I know a lot of Muslims and I agree that there are those kinds of people. Is it, it just occurred to me, is it time for us to think about not stereotyping the West, 
maybe the Muslim world and maybe we ourselves project ourselves very stereotyped as West itself. And maybe the, if we are more, become more conscious of the diversity of the West and the Muslim world sees the West in a different way than in a stereotyped may, way, there may be more dialogue. That is very true, actually. The diversity and the plurality which we witness in the Islamic world, we can also witness it and see it in the Western world. I mean, I am not really very happy with these, uh, I mean, blanket words like uh, Western civilization, Islamic civilization. These are creations of professors of history. They are not creations of God. They are not there, to be sure. So we have created this terminology in order to communicate, but we have to be aware of the dangers. They actually conceal the diversity which lies behind there, which lies inside this civilization. There are all sorts of inconsistencies in every civilization. There is a lot of colorful ideas. I remember one of the Germans, who is a friend of mine, once came to Iran in order to uh, make a research about the political ideas and so on in Iran. And after he finished his research, he came to me and he told me that he never realized before that there was such a colorful, you see, uh, uh, spectrum of, of ideas about politics, religion, and everything in Iran. And I am sure that in the whole Islamic world you would encounter the same thing. So it is true. And uh, it is also the case in, in the Western civilization. The best critiques of the Western civilizations actually are themselves Western philosophers, Western thinkers. So this civilization has produced its uh, critiques as well. And uh, that's one of the secrets of, uh, of uh, its uh, healthiness so far. Otherwise, it would have been corrupted much earlier than this. So yes, we are aware of this. And when we talk about the Western civilizations, yes, we have to actually give this warning to ourselves always that uh, the, the, the plurality of ideas is always there and it is not a monolithic civilization, as you say. Yeah. Sir. Thank you. I'm Marek Goulding, warden of St. Anthony's College at Oxford. And in that context, the warden is not a prison governor. He is a college president. I would like to tempt Professor Sarouche, and I thank you for a most interesting talk, a little further in the direction of being not only a scholar but a politician. You have said, and I agree very much with this, what we in the West have to do is to respect the honor, the dignity, the identity of Muslims. Clearly that is going to be a long-term project. And I wonder if you would, wearing a politician's hat, Professor Sarouche, give us some ideas of the kind of things that you think Western governments should be doing now if they adopt what I believe is the very sensible policy you have advocated. Well, um, the main thing is it is for the Western government to be more ethical in their foreign policy. That is the main idea. I mean, not to pursue their self-interest, not to put their... Uh, national interest at the top of the agenda, not to actually treat other people's, uh, I mean, uh, to treat other people as, as independent, as, uh, as, uh, as people who deserve, I mean, respect. 
to uh, respect the uh, national interest of, of other countries, really to propagate the human rights, not as Western human rights, not human rights which serves the, uh, what is it, the interest of the West, but serves the interest of the mankind at large. So I think that there is a gap I mean, this is of not, of course, is not in, in, in a political jargon, but we understand ourselves when we say that there is a big gap between what is going on in the foreign policy of the Western powers and the ethics and the morality which uh, has to be actually applied and has to be observed. So make it more moral, make it more ethical. That is really the, the case. And uh, this is something that the inconsistency that in the eyes of, uh, of the non-Westerners is so prominent and uh, uh, they take notice of it and they cannot be oblivious of it. So to respect the dignity, not to attack the honor and uh, to respect the independence of others, I, I repeat again, that is the clue to perhaps uh, turn down the uh, movements and the tides of uh, extremism. Uh, we, we started a little bit late with this session, so I permitted myself to go beyond it a little bit. I, I, I'm taking the, the prerogative of chairman to ask the last question, a brief one. Uh, when you announced, Dr. Sharouche, that you were a partisan or that you agreed with Samuel Huntington's um, clash of civilizations theory, I thought there was going to be some sort of shiver running through the audience. There wasn't, but that surprised me. Uh, and, uh, of course, you amended, you amended Huntington by saying instead of civilization, you, you, you replaced it with this clash of identities. But there's a lot of things that can be said in criticism of Huntington's theory, but among the major criticisms has been the idea that you cannot sort of essentialize a civilization as if it's one thing against another thing, sure. both for the West and for, but especially for Islam. I'm just wondering how, how much further ahead do we get if we say a clash of identities? Aren't we essentializing identities too there? There are different kinds of Islamic identities, as, uh, as we were discussing before this uh, uh, yeah. panel began. So I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit of a clarification from here so that people won't uh, leave this audience. They're, they're leaving it already enlightened, but maybe a little bit more enlightened. Well, uh, well, there is a lot to be said about or against the theory of clash of civilizations. And uh, I'm sure that our learned audience may know much more than I do about this uh, theory. Um, first of all, it is a self-nullifying theory in the sense that once you uh, announce it, so it will lead into its negation. And I think that was the realization that Huntington himself came to later on, and uh, he some, somewhere, I think, published it or said it publicly, that uh, now it has produced its negation. It is like the uh, prediction that Marx, for example, made about the death of capitalism. When this is the uh, characteristic and the property of the human sciences, that the prediction in human sciences is not like the prediction in exact sciences. There, if the prediction is correct, then the event eventually has got to happen. But in the case of the uh, uh, human societies and uh, 
uh, human sciences, the prediction sometimes produces their negation. So they are self-nullifying. And I hope that it is a self-nullifying theory or prediction in the sense that the clash of uh, civilizations never happen, especially the bloody clash between the Islamic civilization and the Western civilization, as he predicted. And secondly, actually, he essentialized civilization in the sense that he forgot about the truth dimension of civilization. He actually confined the unreduced civilization into two identities. The identity of the Western civilization or Western civilization as an identity and Islamic civilization as another identity. And once you reduce, you make the reduction, then the consequence is inevitable because identities are there in order to clash. This is one of the characteristics of identity that they are expansionist. Identities are expansionist, are hegemonical. So it is inevitable, and inevitably it would happen. But uh, the main idea is this, that civilizations are not to be reduced to identities only. They have got a truth part. They have, there is a truth part to it. And because of that, sometimes they may come to terms with each other. They may communicate. They may enter a dialogue with each other. And that was why I said that I am with uh, Samuel Huntington, provided we accept his pre-assumptions that civilizations can be reduced to identities. But since it cannot be done like that, therefore, there would be no... Uh, clash, and as I said, we hope that this theory would produce its negation very soon. Well, thank you very much for, for, for starting our conference with such a promising beginning.